What a blessing it is to be able to come together this Sunday morning and appreciate the sweetness of God's wonders and favors toward us. The first day of the week reminds us, among other things, about that week that just now has passed yesterday and all the things you and I enjoyed from the bountiful hand of God in relation to all that, all those things. This is a time of year when many, I suppose, are perhaps more tempted to reflect upon thankfulness and the matters which are beyond us. And maybe this gives us, as this season of the year is upon us, an opportunity to talk more about Jesus and to appreciate the sweetness of His gospel. The lesson title this morning is The Only Vote That Matters. For the next few moments, could I invite each of us to reflect and to consider one of the most profound and one of the most beautiful and at the same time, one of the most meaningful discussions to be found in the Word of God. This opening slide is a relatively brief one, actually, because I wanted to devote the bulk of the actual discussion time in connection to the actual lesson itself. None of us need reminding that one of the activities that is a rather frequent one in the world in which we live is electing somebody. We're so accustomed to it. In fact, the next slide will develop the ideas of that a bit more carefully. But needless to say, we are very familiar with what an election is, how it typically takes place, and what the consequences of it are. Well, could it well be asked, does the Bible teach much about election in a way that is so very rich, and in a way that certainly will mean a great deal to you and me? The answer to that is yes. As I mentioned, as far as some introductory considerations, election. I suppose we're quick to think about electing governmental officials. Now, we do that from time to time, our senators, our legislators, in fact, a number of other governmental offices, the mayor of Putnam County, a number of the other local offices as well. The point is we understand easily that this takes place often and that we have the opportunity to contribute by making our voice for certain individuals involved in that election process. But it isn't only in government. You might remember that when you were in school, were you elected as the class president, or did you cast a vote for someone who was to be the class president? Or maybe the treasurer, or the president of the chess club. And you can go on down the list with so many other examples. Election, again, is easy to understand for the most part, isn't it? For that reason, you'll notice that usually this is the way it happens. There is a particular place or position or office that is to be determined. And then there is at least one or more individuals who let it be known that they are a candidate to hold that office. Now, maybe they are mentioned or nominated by others, or maybe they nominate themselves. However that happens, there at least comes to be known a group of individuals who are willing to serve in that capacity, and then a date for the election is set, in which all who have a right to cast a vote will, in fact, be able to do so. And then there's a tallying of the numbers. And whoever receives the most votes or that which is the appropriate number, that person will then be declared the winner, and they will occupy that office for which they have been running. Now again, the idea, easy enough to understand. But look at the bottom of that slide. 
election is a Bible topic. The Word of God has much to say about election. And this morning, let's devote the remainder of our time to not only considering the way in which that election happens, but some wonderful truths that will be meaningful to us. Would you be turning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1? Now, the lesson text came from 2 Thessalonians, but I was correct. I do want us to start at 1 Thessalonians. As we transition to the next slide, there are going to be a number of things to note, and that text in 1 Thessalonians will begin us on our journey. One verse is all we need, verse 4. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 4. The inspired writer made this declaration. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. There's our word. Election is thus a vital, a critical part of this verse, and yea, many others as well. What does it mean to discuss election in that context? May I ask, who is being elected, who cast the votes, and who determined the winner? Those are all vital things. And in fact, in our country, hasn't there often been assertions of various improprieties in terms of this person, his votes were not counted correctly. He really didn't win. This other person's votes weren't counted correctly. It's a vital question. Who's doing the voting here? Who's counting the votes? And who determined the victor? You'll notice as we start that passage... One of the things easily to notice is then election is a powerful theme in the Word of God, but as we're about to discover, there are some notable differences between Bible election and the kind of election that we typically consider in our land. Let's emphasize the words one by one. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4, Knowing... Brethren, beloved, your election of God. The first word in that verse is the word knowing. As you can see on that slide, easily the church in Thessalonica and those individuals to whom Paul was writing, they were in a position to know absolutely that they'd been elected. It was not a matter of supposition. It was not a matter of ambiguity. It was not a matter of uncertainty. They... We're in a position to know that they had been elected. So the first thing to notice, we aren't electing God. And the church in Thessalonica was not electing God. God is not the one that is, in essence, up for voting. Rather, Paul is making reference to that church, those Christians in Thessalonica. And they were able to know that they had been elected. We might pause to ask, do you and I know we've been elected? Do we know that we have in fact been declared victor in light of some particular counting mechanism? We won. Aren't you sometimes interestingly observant at after the election is over and the victory is declared and there's this powerful celebration? Everybody's smiling. Everybody's happy at the time of that celebration, but... Often the pictures that are shown will show the losing camp. And the faces are somber and the countenances are sad because they didn't win. Their candidate did not win. The church in Thessalonica was such that they'd been elected. 
you'll notice on that slide, there's some immediate observations, some immediate things that might be noted. Religiously speaking today in our world, there are many who think that they've been elected, but they haven't been. Doesn't that fly in the face of what Paul wrote? He said, you can know this. It is not a matter left up for public debate or public opinion. It is something that is clearly clearly and absolutely and definitively known. Therefore, come to the bottom of that slide. This isn't the only time the sweetness of that thought's presented. Can you think of other places, other texts in the wonderful Word of God in which individuals had been elected, thus they were pleasing to God, and they knew it. They were able to know it. Let's start in John 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus Himself speaking. He had already been crucified, and the resurrected Master was now having conversation with His apostles. And it was to them that He said, These things are written. Now, He began by affirming. He was going to talk about things written, but He began by saying, Truly, many other signs did Jesus in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life through His name. In essence, it was told that indeed, the things contained in the Word of God, that's not every miracle that Jesus ever performed. It's not every momentous and wondrous thing that He accomplished but there is sufficient amount written that we can know something. We can know He's the Son of God. And we can know that He came to save the sin-sick souls of man. And in that way, giving our attention to it, He says we can have life in His name. Look at the next one in 1 John 2 verse 5. Same author, by the way. The same apostle of love, John, wrote the book of John and also the book of 1 John. And in 1 John 2 verse 5, it was to those individuals that John beautifully asserted and proclaimed, you can know something. You can know that you've been redeemed. You can know that you're saved. You can know that your position before God is pleasing. While we're in that same book, turn over three chapters to chapter 5 verse 13. In near the closing part of that book, John had these words to write. As he spoke again about the nature of this knowledge and the wonder of it, he says, These things are written that you might believe on the name of the Son of God and that you can know that you have life in His name. May we each appreciate that word know. I suppose it's easy to fall into the consideration that I think I'm saved. I hope I'm saved. I would suggest that you and I as Christians can appreciate the fact we've been elected. If we are living in a specific way, then we have been elected. And as a result of that, the victory's already been assured. The count has already been made. The winner has been declared. There is great reason then to feel confident and assured and to appreciate an element of rejoicing in this. 
You may notice in 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, Paul, I suppose, is exhibit A about this. In that opening chapter of the book of 2 Timothy, verse 12, the statement is there presented to us, as Paul commented, For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul, as you approach death, as you approach the afflictions and trials of life, are you sure you've been elected? There wasn't a doubt in his mind. I know whom I believed, he declared. And not only that, I know he will keep safely what I've committed to him. Three chapters later, 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. One more time, Paul speaking said, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is led up for me a crown of life, which the Lord the righteous judge has given me, and not to me only, but to all of them also that love is appearing. What an air of assurance. What an air of blessed confidence. May I ask that we then revisit 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. Those Christians in faithful Thessalonica, were such that they had been elected. But now let's continue that verse and put a few of these thoughts together. It says, Brethren beloved, your election of God. And you'll notice on the slide, what about this phrase, election of God? First of all, that word election... It might be perhaps worthy to note that literally does carry the idea of a choice, a selection, very much like what you and I do when we cast our vote. We are casting our say in favor of someone in terms of making a selection, in terms of making a choice. Well, you'll notice here, God has cast His vote. Your election of God. God has cast His vote. Might you and I notice, surely those whom God is for would desire to know it. But by the same token, if He hasn't cast His vote for you or for me, surely we'd want to know that too, because some things need to be changed at once. Your election of God. Let's trace through some of the matters on that slide. First of all, you might note the way the King James language presents it. It almost sounds like your election of God. That might make us think, are we electing God here? That's not what it means. In fact, the language is completely the opposite. It's not that we are the ones casting the vote and God is the one whom we're voting for. It's He's the one that casts the vote in favor of us. In that case, the church at Thessalonica. So in many ways, you might think of it more carefully as knowing, brethren, beloved, your election by God. Church in Thessalonica, God elected you. He cast His vote for you. He weighed in favor of that which you are. He voted for you. Now in our land, so much is made about those who will vote Republican and those who will vote Democrat or perhaps Independent. You and I notice here, God's the one casting the vote. It isn't us. For that reason, look at what's next. 
what Paul was talking about here was not by popular vote. The truth of God has not, nor has it ever been, determined by popular vote. It's not that we determine what doctrine is right. It's not that we determine what's favorable, what's appropriate, or that which God will approve. He determines the voting. He's the one that casts the vote. No wonder in that connection, it is God who decrees who wins the election. That's the reason I entitled the lesson the way I did. The only vote that matters is His. The only vote that matters is God's. Your vote and mine. It'll do no good for me to suppose that someone is faithful or appropriate or in fact properly serving of God. And it does you no good to suppose that of me. We are not the ones that cast this vote in the final analysis in any meaningful way, but we want God to cast it. Doesn't it thrill us to consider, surely we would want God to look upon you and upon me and in fact express He or she is living rightly. He or she is making right choices, covered by the blood of my Son, and I look forward to being with Him or her forever. But if God votes against me, if He makes declaration that you or I are not pleasing, are not acceptable, are living in sin, then it doesn't matter what anybody else says about it. If God says I'm wrong, but others may pat me on the back and say, it'll be all right, that's nonsense. Their vote doesn't mean anything. Their vote won't take what's wrong and make it right. Their vote won't take what's sinful and turn it into being acceptable. If God makes declaration that things are well, oh, what a sense of comfort that can bring. But if God votes against me, or if He votes against you, that settles it. It's time to do what the Bible calls repent, to change one's thinking, to bring one's life into harmony with what God declares. The only vote that matters is God's. As you transition to the bottom of that slide, if God's the one casting the vote, then perhaps it's worthy to notice then that God has determined the criteria by which acceptability is to be noted. For that reason, look at how the verse ends. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. Paul began the Thessalonian letter, and notice this is very early on in chapter 1, and he pointed out to them, Don't you know, Christians in Thessalonica, you've been elected. You made the choice to run for something, and God has elected you. I would hope all of us today, the Pippin Church of Christ, might well place our sentence in that, Knowing, brethren, beloved, you Pippin Church of Christ, you've been elected of God. And as such, the selection, the choice, the determination has been made by the God of heaven. The next slide will be one that immediately begs a few questions. We learned early on then that as an election takes place, individuals begin to run. They let it be known that they're candidates to occupy the office. And then there comes a time when the election occurs and the victor is determined. Well, if the church in Thessalonica were elected, when did the election take place? 
how were the votes counted? I would offer the thought that in that First Thessalonians passage, those details are not immediately known. But in 2 Thessalonians 2, which is our lesson text this morning, there's a great deal said which not only helps to answer those questions, but as we put the two passages together, it fills our heart with sweetness. And it fills our life with an understanding of how wonderful it is to be elected by God and to appreciate the blessings and benefits that go with it. So would you turn over with me to 2 Thessalonians 2, and we will encamp in that passage that was read in our hearing just a moment ago by Brother John. At the top of that slide, I would make a few introductory comments about the comparison. First of all, it seems as if much might be noted that goes hand in hand between the 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4 text and the 2 Thessalonians 2.13 passage. Let me read 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 and 14. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto He called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I've just asked you to notice several points of favorable comparison between the two passages. First, the giving of thanks mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 2, and also 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But in addition, the phrase, brethren beloved, occurred in both passages. Paul was very tenderly and also very powerfully referring to these sweet brethren of his. That's mentioned again, verse 13 of chapter 2 of the second book, and also verse 4 of chapter 1 of the first book. But notice election is quite frankly the matter of discussion in each passage. Let's now give some attention to the part I've labeled number 3. When did the election occur? And what about the details surrounding it? Well, you'll notice on that slide... Verse number 13 had used this very language. Brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. When did God make this selection? When did He cast His vote? May we each be impressed. It says from the beginning. It says from the beginning. From the beginning, chosen you. The great God of heaven cast a vote in the distant recesses of past eternity for you and me. He voted for us. You might want to give some thought to the profoundness of that consideration. It's not as though He voted for you last week, last year. He voted for you and for me in the distant recesses of the past. From the beginning, it says. Well, with that thought in mind, may I say a number of other passages will in fact echo a sense much like that one. May I call to your attention John chapter 1, verses 1 and following. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was with God in the beginning. And without Him was not anything made that was made. 
So we learn there about the greatness of God's eternity and the considerations about the fact He existed in that marvelous realm. But in Ephesians 1, verses 2, 3, and 4, it says from the very beginning of the creation, you and I as individuals, as those who are Christians, have been found pleasing to Him. He chose us that long ago. Now maybe you and I could stumble over the appreciation of this. Let me ask you to perhaps put it together like this. Before the foundations of this world were ever laid, God voted for you. Before the foundation of the world was ever laid, before day one on the creation week, God voted for us. He cast His vote for a certain group of people. By now we can probably imagine who that group is and who it has ever been. Ultimately, as we transition to the bottom of that slide, the appreciation of all this selection and election by God, note the wording, chosen to salvation. To salvation. Why did God make this vote? Why did He cast His vote this way? So they could be saved. He voted for them for that purpose, for that reason. That's the mission. You'll notice one more thing about that set of ideas. And this is what is going to come about as we put two final things together. So first of all, far back in the distant matters in history, God voted for a group of people. He voted that they might appreciate and know salvation. So long before I was born, long before you were born, God cast a vote for a group of people. The critical thing is I've got to be in that group. The thing most important, you have got to be in that group. We've all got to be in it, for He voted for that group. If I'm outside that group, He didn't vote for me. If I'm outside that number, I am not favored by Him. Thankfully, the latter part of verse 13 will tell us, how do you get to be in that number? So that I can be the ones for whom God voted. That I can be among that number that will sweetly know salvation. Let's read the latter part again. From the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. That slide then develops it like this. The word sanctification comes from an original word that clearly relates to sanctify, and it means to set apart, to make holy, to place in a position of consecration. It thus follows through sanctification of the Spirit. Those who have been set apart by connection to the Spirit, those who occupy a position of sanctification by virtue of connection to the Spirit's teaching, Paul said that's going to be the way this happens. That's how you get into that number, into that group. So the Holy Spirit set before the human family the particulars of what was needed to be done in order to be a part of that number. And then it's this simple. If I will do what the Spirit says, I will be in that number. God will thus have cast His vote for me and I shall be saved. But if I choose to rebel, if I choose to rely upon my own thinking, my own wisdom, whatever that might be, and ignore the teaching of the Spirit, 
and give no interest in believing that which is the truth the Spirit has made known, then God votes against me. And I'm not elected by Him. It fits together so easily connected to obedience, doesn't it? Perhaps seen like this. John chapter 3, verse 5. When Jesus had conversation with Nicodemus, that one who had come to Jesus by night and said, Master, we know thou art come from God, for no man can do these signs, these miracles which thou doest, except God be with him. John 3, verses 2 and 3. But Jesus, in rather quick nature, replied, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What's this? A rebirth is essential, is necessary. Without it, there is no seeing the kingdom of God. As you and I well remember, Nicodemus was confused. How can a man be born? Can he enter the second time in his mother's womb and be born? Jesus said, no, no, no. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, as the Lord explained it to Nicodemus, He pointed out then that the connection related to both rebirth relating to the matter of water and to the Spirit. You'll notice on the slide before you, the Spirit is what has been mentioned here, sanctification of the Spirit. Thus, as one appreciates, the Word of God is the message of the Spirit. The Word of God is what sets a person apart. The Word of God is what gives those necessary instructions of the doctrine of heaven. But then, of course, it goes on to say, and belief of the truth. It isn't enough to own a Bible. You've got to believe and do it. It isn't enough to know something of what it says. One has to, in fact, give over in relinquishing the nature of what it teaches, the belief of the Spirit. Did Jesus say, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved? Mark 16, 16. For that reason, you'll notice on the slide, I've asked you to emphasize the word and. He notes sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. In the Bible, the word belief is connected to obedience. We see that over and again in the book of Acts and so many other passages. If one believes what the Bible says, you can't help but do it because too much is at stake. Too much is involved. A mental ascent is never what's merely involved in the biblical proclamation of what is obedience to God. As that slide closes, the election then that you and I have discussed so far has gone like this. In the long-distance matters of the past, God knew mankind was going to sin. Even before He created man, He knew man was going to sin. After all, God knows all things. But even then, He knew He was going to send the Son. And that Son was going to put in place a means by which mankind could be saved. And God elected then that all of those that will obey the gospel and those that live faithful to the teaching of the gospel, they have been elected. And they are the ones that are saved. We know that because of the next verse. Look at verse 14. Whereunto He called you by our gospel. God had you call those that are elected. The text says He called by the gospel. 
And so it ends by saying, to the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to continue that saga, when you and I obey the gospel, when a person obeys the gospel, they answer the call of God. And when they thus submit to those matters in obedience to that gospel, they now are in a group of people that God has elected. He cast His vote for them, and they are approved by Him. And as long as they will live faithfully in that group, verses like these apply. There is no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 verse 1. No condemnation. However, if they choose to start living unwisely, to live sinfully, and to, in fact, remove themselves from that number. Now God hasn't voted for them because they've now chosen to leave the grouping wherein God had voted. Now He votes against them. And He so much pleads that they might come to their senses to return faithfully to that group that they once were a part of. All of that leads us to close this lesson and do so not only with that brief set of ideas, but then a statement of conclusion. The church in Thessalonica had been elected. There were those in the past who stumbled somewhat over this teaching, and there are still those today who in Calvinistic doctrine teach that God handpicked in certain individuals, and they're going to be saved no matter what, but others He chose that they'll be lost. The Bible doesn't teach that. What it teaches is the choice is ours in the sense that God elected those in the church. Are you a faithful member of the church? If you are, God voted for you. If you're not, He voted against you. The church is that critical. They're the only ones going to be saved eternally, Ephesians 5.23. They're the only ones who are going to appreciate that they're the kingdom that will be handed over to the Father on that great day of judgment, 1 Corinthians 15.24. So if we're not in that kingdom, we won't be handed over to the Father that way. Will be cast away from him, Revelation 19, verses 20 and 21. Where do you and I stand? Have you been elected? Are you occupying that place favorably? If you're not, please come back to your first love. Come down this aisle today and make confession of those errors and repent of them so that again God will reinstate you to a place of election. You know, being elected is a very special place, and it's a very special thing. It speaks volumes about the nature of who did the voting. Surely you and I should want God to vote for us, just like He voted for Job. Behold my servant Job. God said that. He brought the nature of Job's character even before Satan. Have you seen my servant Job, how faithful he is? In essence, God says, I voted for him. And today, if you and I are a faithful Christian, He's voted for us too. If there's someone in this audience that's never become a Christian, don't you want God to vote for you? As we just learned, you've got to obey the gospel in order to do that. Believe with all of your heart Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His great name as the Son of God. And then submit yourself to be immersed in water. We call it baptism for the remission of sins. If you have begun that way of life and have known the blessedness of election, but for whatever reason, you've left that behind you, 
You're now living in a way that you know you're not elected favorably by God. You know that. Don't remain in that condition. Death could come any time. The Lord could come back any time. And if you wait that long, it becomes eternally permanent. You can't change it. Today, if we could be of help to you, we'd love to do that. We would beseech you to come and answer this gospel invitation of verse 14. And do so now while together we stand and while we sing.